Welcome to our sixth episode of Becoming a Post-Growth Planner, Obstacles and Challenges to Changing Roles and Practices. I'm Christian Lamker, Assistant Professor for Sustainable Transformation and Regional Planning at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. And today I'm happy to welcome Robert, Robin Boyle, pro Professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, United States. So welcome to you. You can shortly introduce yourself. Well, it's good to see you, uh, Christian. It's uh, it's been a while, and I'm very pleased to see that you're um, making your um, your career uh, and, and combining different countries. I think the fact that you're in the Netherlands is 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 great. Um, I made a big change, uh, a bit further than you from Dortmund to to Groningen, but uh, my background in Scotland and in the UK, and then over here, I think has been uh, has given me a, a very interesting insight into many topics in planning, not least the topic that you and your colleagues are exploring through the post-growth planning project. Thank you. So let if we start, if you look into today's planning, planning practice, how would you describe a typical today's planner in general, but also in your con context of Detroit? Well, that's um, a, a, it's actually a difficult question. Um, how would I describe today's planner? Well, let me start, if, if you don't mind, by putting a little bit of context, because I think that might allow me and allow you and your listeners to realize that there's such diversity around the planning profession. And if you don't mind, I'd just spend five minutes or so, or maybe less, just setting uh, the context. Um, I can do this in a cross-national context because I've been involved with this for a long time. Um, one of the things that I, I, I worked on when I many 30 years ago was a book called Privatism and Urban Planning in Britain and the United States. It was published in 1989-1990 and um, I went back to that to set myself up for this conversation because so many of the things that you are hinting at or talking about, we were talking about 30 years ago. Um, during uh, just at the end of, of President Reagan's period and Margaret Thatcher's period uh, in Britain and Reagan here in, in the United States. Because what, one thing that we explored and one thing that I do want to talk about today is, is culture. The culture in which planning operates and the culture that planning then has as a framework for how it operates. And... Um, I think it's important for your listeners, wherever they come from, to understand that planning in the United States is shaped by what I have called, and we have called, a very deep-seated commitment to growth. So your title, post-growth planning, is a upfront and very violent challenge to the way in which planning operates here in the United States. And it's a, a cultural commitment to growth, which is also, and I think we'll get back to discussing that this as well, it is something that is largely measured through the prism of economic change. Wealth, accumulation, prosperity, acquisition. That is the measurement of change that is that is the United States of America, and, and, and that affects the way in which uh, planning operates. Now, roughly, pub public planning has been around in America for about 100 years. It's actually interesting that uh, in 1920, the fundamentals of public planning were put in place. So you might think, well, surely there's been a, a, a hundred years now 
of a of of a, of, of a public involvement in, in 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 looking at cities and how development occurs, and that is the case. Planning is important in the United States of America, in almost every state, in every state, including Hawaii, by the way, which is one of the most planned places in 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 the union. But I would argue, and we've argued, and I would continue to argue that growth has been part of this project. It's using public action and public policy to actually promote not what you're talking about, a, a post-growth situation, but a growth situation. And, and that has been important for a long time. Even the well-known components of public planning in the, in the US over these hundred years, and you can easily remember what they were. Rebuilding the South as part of, Roosevelt, uh, of Roosevelt's New Deal, number one. Number two, uh, building an uh, interstate highway system under Eisenhower. Um, remaking the downtowns in, in, in the United States. Funding the housing, the, the housing machine in the post-World War II period. All of these, if you think about it, have been feeding that growth machine, which is the famous term that has been widely known in the United States. And again, um, your title uh, is, is a direct challenge to that that we're about. So, to answer your question, the vast majority or the overwhelming majority of planners working in the United States continue to pursue a growth agenda. Yeah. So we already use the title that's somehow then violent towards these ideas. Uh, but do you see the importance to understand what hinders planners to think in this post-growth direction? So planners is only one part of this growth machine, of course. Um, there are challenges, there is no doubt. But let me give you some examples, and I think it's important that we, that we understand that. And, and we've argued this for over 40 years, 30 years or so, that the growth mechanism, the growth machine in the United States of America has in itself challenged the very concept of place the very concept of community, something that planners are deeply connected to. Would you agree with that? Definitely, yeah. Well, our argument is that from the mid-1970s, when there was a global realignment of the economy, it was due to a change in the oil industry long before you were on this earth, Christian or your colleagues, um, the back-to-back -back, um, recessions of the 1970s restructured the global economy. And what happened at, at that time, and it's probably because of lots of issues in, in American society, people lost that or began to fracture the connection between growth and place. For many, many, for, for the most, from, from the mid 19th century through to the mid 20th century, growth was largely urban, the big cities, the great cities. In the late 1970s and into the 80s, with the Reagan administration in particular, there began to be a break of that. Prosperity would be found wherever it was necessary. It was, in, in a sense, the great shift from supporting cities to supporting development, growth, wherever it was possible. 
Um, famous statement from uh, Gerald Ford when he was president: "New York, you're on your own." The the, the crisis in the funding of the United of, of of New York. It wasn't. It didn't go into bankruptcy, but it got really really close. Trace that forward, and you can see how uh, cities and place, and, and to some extent, community at the local level uh, has been weakened by that failure to continue to support to, to support cities. And there's a big and there's a big challenge here in the United States. If planning is about place and community, connectivity, density, how do they how do they connect that? to this cultural uh, pursuit of growth. And if that happens to be in Dakota or Oklahoma um, or in um, you know, the panhandle of Texas, then so be it. That is where funding and money will, will go. So there is a deep challenge at present. And I'll come back to that when I try and answer some of your other questions. Yeah, uh, we met each other for, also in, in Dortmund, in Germany, and also in Melbourne, in Australia. Did you observe major differences there or what was striking when you observed planning, planners, urban development in these two cities and their surrounding regions? That's a great question and, and a very difficult one to, to succinctly answer. Uh, could spend hours talking about that. So for context for the readers, yes, I had a, a, an opportunity f f five years ago to take a year out um, of, of my work and go and live uh, in Dortmund in Germany uh, and then come home, recharge for a, a month or so and then go for six months. Uh, the most exciting time probably in my career in the city of Melbourne, uh, Australia. I found in both, um, uh, in both places similarities and dissimilarities. The, the, the dissimilarity was that I did feel a stronger commitment to, to place. Um, in, in the German system and, and in parts of the Australian system. But on the other hand, I also found the same tension of pursuing growth and trying to hunt for that, hunt down what's the latest growth paradigm that we can pursue. It was quite similar. For example, just one, one example, um, suburban sprawl, the, the, the failure to, to hold on to boundaries, to move across the flat plane of economic development is, is alive and well in Australia. Mm. Uh, the real growth was, you know, 20, 30, 40 kilometers outside downtown. Everybody knows of the downtown metropolitan um, miracle that is Melbourne around the Yarra uh, River and, and what happens in that vibrant downtown. But, but much of the development is occurring way out. Uh, in in the in 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 the suburbs of, of, of Melbourne, in Germany, similar that you can see that although there is that strong commitment to to holding on to um, onto the city it, itself, but I, I I saw similar tensions, similar tensions that occurred when I looked at planning mechanisms in in each of these uh, three of, of in each of these three um, countries. How is the situation today in Detroit or the region surrounding Detroit, uh, especially now that some have talked about a revival of Detroit, which is largely connected to growth again? Uh, what would you describe the situation there today? Well, today is, is a very interesting word. It's a small word. Today, of course, we are impacted. And it would be wrong for me speaking to you today on the uh, 16th of November 2020, not to mention the context in which we are. COVID, the, the global pandemic, ha is having an enormous impact on all of us. 
Um, but I want to try and not get too involved with the current situation that is obviously um, going to have an impact, having an impact and will have an impact for a, a, at least um, at least 10 years, in my, in my opinion. But you asked the question about Detroit today. Let me let me use that to focus on that opening question. What are the who are the planners today? I think that planning today, um, people in, in 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 public office, and that is the largest proportion of the planning profession. I need to make that clear. A lot of people think that um, in in America everybody's in the private sector for planning. That's not the case. A significant proportion of trained planners work in government. And what are they addressing today? And I push COVID aside. Mm -hmm. Well, there is a very interesting dynamic emerging in the United States of America that has been really fueled by what has occurred over the past four or five years and more, and more recently uh, by concerns of racial, particularly racial inequality, and also class inequality, although that, of course, in America is hidden, it's pushed back, um, but it's largely a, a, a racial concern. And it impacts the planning system largely through housing, because a lot of people are arguing that the housing market, the private market, the privatism in housing uh, has been particularly um, impactful against those of, 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 of colour, people of colour, and, and racial uh, minorities in some places, majorities, as is the case here in, in the city of, of Detroit. So people are beginning to really ask questions about the way in which the planning system, particularly the land use system, is impacting um, the, the delivery, the access and the opportunity in, in, in housing. Now, I'm a bit of a skeptic, so I'll be blunt. I'm not altogether convinced that somebody's going to flick a switch and all of a sudden, uh, racial disparity will disappear through uh, a revaluation of the zoning system, which is what people are beginning to talk about. I think it is going to take a great deal more about that. So th that's one issue. The second issue is something that's been there for about 20 years, maybe, maybe longer, uh, here in the United States. And that's the whole question of the extent to which climate change can be impacted by the way in which planners make decisions. And there's a lot of small scale change, which has been quite impactful, but does it change the needle? Does it move the dial um, as compared to, um, you know, the, the use of concrete, um, the depletion of, of natural resources, the way in which we power this country, which is largely driven by fossil fuels, as, as you know. Nevertheless, it is a, a conversation which, is constantly coming through the planning system. By by that I mean the detailed planning system. I don't I don't mean you know master plans and all that stuff. I mean the day to day control of development. That's a, a second item. And, and and the third the third question takes us back to where I started. And that is, to what extent um, are we seeking to rebuild place? To what extent are are, are, are is is are the, are the questions of being together as people living relatively close to one another, the density question, the accessibility question, uh, the mobility question, how are these actually being developed by today's planners uh, as, as they go forward? Um, 
it's it's a it's a really tough question and that's where covid comes back front and center because there are a lot of issues about that the question of if planning came out of a public health concern uh, 200 years ago we've got a public health concern today and what are we being told we are being told to be careful where we gather who we gather with how long we spend with people how much daylight and sunlight do we have uh, these are questions that have been front and set. Go and pick up any planning text, and the first conversations will be around our health. Correct? Yep, definitely. So we're back there. And mm -hmm. I think that is having an impact on the way in which uh, planners are, are talking about um, the future today. Yeah, I just remember when we drove through Detroit and we saw many nice places where things were happening. But then all the question, how does that hold together on, a, on an urban, not to say of a regional scale? So the issue of uh, planning also the larger scale concerning different land uses. So I can imagine what, you what you're talking about, especially in the Detroit context. So let me go back to your question about what do planners do? Mm -hmm. I, do I do think it's important uh, to understand that the majority of planners who come through a very rigorous and I think a really good training process here in the United States. And I can say this because I've done both. Mm -hmm. I, I've worked in both of them. And I think what happens in, in programs here in the US is, 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 is something that I'm, I'm very, very proud to have been part of. But when they get out into their jobs, the growth machine really has an impact on what they do. Um, I looked up the numbers. Uh, about two-thirds of all planners work in the public sector. And when you ask them what they do, more than half of them deal with the day-to-day -day activities of what we call site plan review or working on how development is going to impact uh, existing communities. But at the end of the day, it's an approval process. It's, an, it, it's a process which is largely approving development that is considered to be in the best interests of, of the community in which these planners serve, but also in the interests of the developer and the investor and the builder who brings the project to the table. And that is what a large proportion of planners actually do. And at the edges, they can have an impact on the topics that you and I have just been discussing. Uh, but, tr but truthfully, much of what their activities are um, are, are, are to continue to see investment occurring in cities. And if we go back to Detroit, there is an overwhelming press, pressure to, to try and find ways in which development can be brought back. The machine, the machine was running at a very low level in Detroit, if not dying mm -hmm. in Detroit. The empty city, the city that no longer had development, um, and, and many argue that in order to, to rebuild the city, and that is what is happening in pockets, in small parts, mm. is to get the growth machine to come back. And of course, that brings us back to the whole culture, the whole un undergirding of, of what the American city is, is, is about. So there is a, a consistent tension that people are, are, are addressing as we go forward. Now, how COVID is going to change that, is, is, is really very interesting indeed. And I have no crystal ball, but I can say some things about it if you want, if you want to have that conversation. So let me ask you a question. 
Yeah. How have your other guests dealt with this current environment, uh, this current pandemic as part of your post-growth scenario? In this podcast, we didn't address uh, the corona crisis too much, but it's uh, def or our aim was not to do a corona podcast to think, but to think a bit beyond corona uh, on the general issue of becoming a post-growth planner. But indeed, uh, Corona is a huge problem for, I guess, across our guests on what it means to uh, deal with urban space and uh, to hold a community together, to plan together, and also not to lose people that are out of sight, uh, people that lost their, lost their their jobs, lost their places to, uh, to enjoy. So um, it changes especially many things for low-income people, for people in the relevant most important jobs for our society now in health systems and um, public services and so on to those people that are um, rarely seen by some others but that really care for that the whole system the whole city works mm -hmm. and i mean I, I, there are s several examples that i think are, are very troubling and one of them is connected to what you've just said many of the many of the people who are supporting our healthcare services and our support services are people who don't have a great deal of wealth. They, they rely upon um, inadequate transportation services here in, in, in Detroit, and yet it is the bus services, the transportation services that are most hard hit. Uh, deep concerns about being in confined spaces like buses um, or, or shared um, transit of some form or another, and yet they are the people who are most um, badly needed to help <clears throat> us go through uh, this this concern and, and this situation that we find ourselves in. And we don't have easy answers to that. A lot of people um, go back the way to saying, well, you're safer in your own car. Well, it's all very well, but if you don't have a car, and you don't have access to a car, then you're reliant upon a, a system that is, is, is being um, cr criticised because it's, a, it, it's a, bit, a place where people potentially uh, can be impacted by this pandemic. So th there are so many of these uh, problems that connect between um, personal activity and, and, and public activity that planners have to deal with on a regular basis. It, 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 it's a difficult, yet another difficult challenge. Yeah, and also if you take economic growth, many of these essential workers don't add that much to growth in their individual income numbers and they don't pay that many taxes, but still they are the ones who keep us all alive, even in, in immediate senses. And that brings me to another really good example that is very relevant to you and to many of your listeners. And that is this whole argument that um, emerged here in the US but spread over the rest of the world that universities and colleges and higher education was, was very much part of the growth, the growth machine, the anchors of, of, of the economy and the anchors of, of, of urban development. Well, that's a difficult um, issue when you're now seeing places like universities becoming either um, the petri dish of, of, of coronavirus uh, spread or, or becoming isolated, quiet, almost dead areas because the, the occupants of these centers of learning, the, the anchors, uh, have been told to stay at home. So here's an immediate challenge to one of the um, 
sort of uh, knee-jerk responses to the new economy which occurred what, over the past 15, 20 years or so. Maybe these uh, big institutions sitting there across the world um, are not quite as powerful as, as people thought. Hard to say, but also what you, you're talking about is also Groningen. We still have some on-campus on teaching, but you can imagine the campus looks different with very few students, some staff members. Um, and the whole issue of also the community building uh, between students, uh, between students and staff members, teachers, um, and everyone around just works differently if you're spread around in individual offices, in individual um, homes, or even small rooms. In, indeed, and, and, and even more bluntly, the, the whole idea of, of, of um, these institutions like higher education being um, the, the anchors in, in the economy was the spillover, the spread effect, if you want, you know, classic economics. So if you get 100, if you get, you know, 20,000 people on, on one place, they're going to go and buy coffee, they're going to, you know, buy a newspaper, they're going to buy dinner, they're going to buy clothes. So the economy, the local economy spreads out from these centers of attraction where the density creates economic activity. Take that away, what happens to the neighborhoods? around these uh, the, the, these major uh, institutions that people have talked about over the past 20 years and, and planners have led that we have you know i can give you a dozen books about the power of the university development and creating new place and new community well gosh if that goes away we need to rethink things and that's just a little example a tiny little example of of the impact of of, of what we're dealing with at present I don't have any answers, but it's it's certainly food for thought. Yeah. So let's let's imagine we are in today's situation. Uh, do you have a specific advice for a planner today to take the courage to think a bit beyond growth, to use some post-growth thoughts uh, in his or her practice? Well, uh, let me turn that around a bit and say that if you come from a place like Detroit uh, and you're at school in, in, in Detroit or any of the institutions that are around us, and we've got some great institutions, the whole question about growth and post-growth is part of the agenda. It is part of, of the way in which we talk. Um, now, as I've argued, there's a cultural commitment to growth, but at the same time, there's, there's what's staring you in the face, the, the, the the, the loss of what was our growth machine in this in the case of southeast michigan the automobile industry and everything it brought not just to our area but to to metropolitan and urban uh, america what do we do when that what have we done what will we do when that changes and and moves in 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 a different direction how do planners deal with the land use and physical implications of change of or in in that way and i would say that and this is again i'm to some extent, um, going back to what I said before, I think the, the educational system here in the US has done quite a good job in making people think about that. We don't have any answers, but I think we send our students out into the world with a realization that there are no simple answers and it does take a long time. I think one thing we've talked about is the question of time. Time and place are, are, are connected. And you can't expect a change to happen particularly quickly. So um, you asked me to say, um, please finish the sentence for us. Post-growth growth planning is? Post-growth planning is to have an understanding of this spectrum, this 
connection between the places that have been created over time. Um, we are always evolving. So try and push COVID away. We're always evolving as we go forward. And I think planners need to be aware that yes, they have an immediate challenge that next week they have to approve or not approve or recommend or not recommend a particular development. But they need to be aware that their, their decisions or their recommendations, because it's how the system actually works. Planners don't often make decisions. They encourage, they give information to others to make decisions. We need to remember that. But when they're doing that, they need to remember that there will be implications in the future as change occurs, as the economy and as society moves and changes, um, they will have implications for tomorrow. So, yeah, good to keep some long term thinking and even visioning alive. Thanks, Robin Boyle, for joining us today for this episode. And many regards also from Viola Schulze-Dikov and from others active on post-growth planning here in Europe, Europe, in the Netherlands, in Germany. So thanks for joining us. Good. Thank you. Thank you.